0: The following program has the potential, dare I say probability, to give offense. It's Thursday, May 21st, 2020, from Slate, it's the gist I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, the president, our president, Donald J. Trump was asked a straightforward question, the kind of question that presidents always hate. In fact, most people hate this kind of question. It's what have you done wrong? From Frank Sinatra, regrets I have a few, then again, too few to mention, To everyone who has ever hashtagged no regrets, so Trump was asked, "Quote: What would you have done differently facing the crisis?"
1: Well, nothing. If you take New York and New Jersey, which were very hard hit, we were very, very low. And in terms of morbidity, and in terms of uh, uh, you look at the death, relatively speaking, we're at the lowest level, along with Germany. Germany, us. There could have been some smaller countries too, perhaps. In fact, the U.S. is
0: eighth worst in the world, ninth if you count the microstate of San Marino. This is deaths per capita, which is of course the only reasonable way to compare big countries to small countries. And anyway, if you don't go by deaths per capita, if you just go by absolute numbers, the United States is by far the worst. So, divided by population, the United States is clearly demonstrably, inarguably among the world's worst country in combating coronavirus. You could quibble with China reporting all you want, but the United States has a death rate per 100,000, worse than all but a few European countries. Again, that is per capita, which the president addressed this way.
1: And you know, when you say per capita, there's many per capita, it's just like per capita relative to what?
0: It's relative to the size of the population, actually. Per of capita person.
1: But you can look at just about any category and we're, Really, at the top, meaning positive on a per capita basis. To
0: incorrect, not just confusing, but wrong. And then the president tried to carve out an exception for the parts of America that so often make things inconvenient for him.
1: And that's including New York and New Jersey, which have had a very, uh, they had a very high number. So uh, if you include New York, New Jersey, do everything. If you don't include New York and New Jersey, we're Just about in a glass by ourselves.
0: Well, if you're gonna take out the hardest hit areas of the USA, New York and New Jersey do account for 40% of total deaths. Then to be fair, you have to do it for other countries. I mean, if you do it for Italy, they had 16,000 or so people die in the Lombardy region. Their death toll would fall from 86,000 to 70,000. In the UK, London recorded 21% of the total COVID-19 deaths despite having only 15% of the population. I think those numbers exclude Scotland and Northern Ireland. They're always excluding Scotland and Northern Ireland. But the point is, you take out those deaths, the UK numbers fall also. The point is, if you take the worst hit areas from any situation, the situation looks better. That's why we call them the worst hit areas. You know, if you take Wuhan out of China, but no... Forget it, just forget it. Meta point here, I'm constantly torn between rebutting these accuracies and ignoring them. So what I do is, whenever I hear statements like this made, I kind of sense, well, was it repeated? Was it widely rebutted? And this one just seemed to skate by, so I thought I would point out that he's just wrong and wrong and wrong. In general, I think it's best to ignore the silly kerfuffles, and every once in a while, to hold your fire until you weigh in on what he proposes as supposed facts and inaccurate statistics. Of course, it's true if you took out all the inaccurate statistics, the overall accuracy rate would improve quite a bit. In the spiel today, rhetoric and arguing plainly versus arguing in the argot of the elites. AKA when Argo becomes Argo Bargo. But first, the return of Dr. Paul Offit, disease expert, pediatrician, highly credentialed doctor, and a guy who got the coronavirus wrong at first. It's an interesting story, which I present for your education, not your condemnation. (laughs) Yesterday, we spoke to Paul Offit, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania, the Director of Vaccine Education at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So he was on to talk about his book, Overkill, When Modern Medicine Goes Too Far, and that was a good conversation. I commend you to yesterday's show. But in this half of the interview, we talk about coronavirus, and first— I asked him about young patients he was seeing because we know that children can spread the virus, but it's not very deadly to them. However, there is this new series of symptoms, which looks a little like Kawasaki's disease. It's marked by inflammation. And I asked the doctor if he was seeing children presenting those symptoms. I wanted to now transition to talking a little bit about COVID-19 and the pandemic. First, I'll ask you, there have been reports about how this does show up in children. And in general, children can spread the disease, but they haven't been killed by it. But there is an exception that you tell me, has it been presenting itself lately or we've been noticing it lately where there is this inflammation in the body that looks like Kawasaki disease before we went on. In in front of the microphones, we were talking a little bit about this. Tell me how what you've been seeing with that
2: presentation of coronavirus. Right. So we've seen a handful of these children in our hospital, Children's Hospital Philadelphia, and it's a post-infectious phenomenon. In other words, these children often have no signs or symptoms of 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 COVID nineteen, none, and then um, and then you know sort of weeks later after they've been exposed presumably to the virus, um, they develop this sort of multi-system disease characterized by rash and so-called vasculitis, meaning inflammation of the vessels. And because all, all organs have blood vessels, therefore all organs are affected. The organ that, that that is most severely affected is the heart. The the two arteries that supply the heart can become um, inflamed. And with that, you can, you, know, you can suffer essentially a heart attack and death, which is, has happened now to about uh, four or five children in the United States. Again, as a general rule, the COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, the virus spares children in ter- as a general rule. I mean, I think... I think there's fewer than 15 children in the United States who've died as compared to, say, 160 children who died of influenza this year. So it tends to generally spare children. But um, there is this unusual syndrome. This is a a weird virus. I mean, it's a bat coronavirus that just recently made its debut in the United States. And we are learning as we go.
0: Yeah. If there wasn't the entire pandemic we're dealing with, but if, say, this was only showing up in the rare cases in children that you've been seeing, would that even be, I mean, we're insane about the health of our children, so maybe the answer is yes, but do you, would that even be a, um, a national conversation? Would it be um, concerning parents as much as it is now? Because I think in the beginning with coronavirus, people who are at least informed said, well, at least it isn't affecting children, though they could spread it to others. Now I'm hearing from parents, ooh, this is, this is a new wrinkle. Now we've got to be really worried about the effects of coronavirus.
2: It's still very rare. I mean, you're still talking about maybe 100 children total in the United States who've been affected by this, and I think fewer than five who've died from it. But so it's still extremely rare. You're still more likely to die from influenza in this country than from uh, from this virus as a child, as someone less than 18. But um, yeah, but it is worrisome. I mean, it's a new wrinkle to this weird, weird virus.
0: Yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you about how your thoughts on the virus have changed, because I randomly was driving in my car in early March, and I heard you on the uh, Sirius show, which was dedicated to medical professionals that's run by NYU Langone. And in that show, and we do have the clip, you were, I don't want to say dismissive, but the context you put it in is against the flu, which a lot of people were saying, and you found the flu to be... Uh, much more dangerous, and you also said you don't understand what the why we 're quarantining, so how did you i mean I, I assume you 've changed your mind about that, but you tell me
2: yeah, in two ways I think first of all the um I still thought at the time that there could be a more sort of surgical way of doing this, which is to say protect nursing homes. Um, you know, older people should stay home. Anyone who's even mildly ill should stay home. Anyone who, um, you know, who's exposed to someone who's mildly ill in their house should all stay home. Because again, I thought this was gonna be such a huge hit to our economy. I mean, I thought, early on I predicted as many as a 20% loss of our wake- workforce. It could be as high as 30% now, and it could be even higher than that. So, and, and you know, it's just, it's, we're gonna be digging out from this for years. I I thought there was a target away, but I think, in the end, I think you couldn't trust that people were gonna do that, and I think Dr. Fauci was right, just scare the hell out of people and make us all stay home. The other thing I think I was wrong about, you know, because flu, flu causes typically um, about, you know, it can cause 60, 65,000 deaths a year. I never thought we'd be that high, because wrongly, I assumed that we would be similar to other countries. I mean, as it turns out, we're 4% of the, of the world's population and 30% of its deaths. I mean, we've done much worse in our country than most other countries. I think of the 240 countries in, the, in this world, we're 231st in terms of deaths per million. I never imagined we would be that bad. So I was wrong on both those counts. Now, I want to play a
0: clip, and I swear this isn't a gotcha. I loved your book. I've loved our conversation so far. But I want to ask you an implication, but I have to play this so the audience hears. Daniel, do you have that?
2: You know, we have, uh, by CDC estimates, between 18,000 and 45,000 deaths from influenza this year. We have 14 deaths from, from this virus, and, and people are treating this like it's a viral apocalypse. And I don't see it. I don't understand the quarantining, which I think is probably going to do very little to stop spread, given that there's a tremendous base of of infection, i.e. asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, that you're not going to identify that's going to cause spread. I mean, this is in the community. It's going to spread. If somebody comes into our hospital and has COVID-19 as compared to influenza, we treat the the COVID-19 differently. And I just don't see – I honestly don't understand why. I think we've done a bad job of of how we've educated the public about this because we've scared them to death. And so –
0: Absolutely. I mean this sincerely, not in the spirit of a gotcha, but as a scientist, when you hear that and you do an assessment, what occurs to you? What thoughts run through your head?
2: Yeah, what occurs to me is I probably shouldn't talk for things where uh, you get to record it because then you can see how you're wrong. I mean, I was wrong. I, I think initially when this virus came into the country, the thinking was that it was that its reproducibility index, meaning the number of people you would infect during a day, was similar to flu, which is to say two. You would infect roughly two people a day. And I didn't understand why we were treating this virus differently given that it was spread by small droplets like flu is spread, and, and given that it had a reproducibility index similar to flu, why were we treating it so differently than flu? and the answer was i was wrong and we all were all wrong i mean what doesn't have a reproducibility index of 2 it has a reproducibility index somewhere closer to 6 because it 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 unlike flu it's not just spread by small droplets it's also spread by so-called really small droplets meaning micro aerosolization so that so those droplets can hang in the air for 14 to 18 minutes meaning people don't have to have direct contact with you they just have to be in your airspace within 10 or 15 minutes of your being there that's a little more like measles than it is like flu and I think that's just something we found out also there is a so-called fecal oral component to spread so it's like norovirus you know and I think there were some early indications of that with seeing the virus on uh, cruise ships nursing homes that's very neurovirus like and so I think you know again, we learned as we went. I didn't, and I do, I mean, I'm listening to myself say that, and I I, I get how I said that then, based on what we knew then, but I think uh, we've learned more as we've gone. So therefore, what I said was dead wrong. But also... I do think that
0: the lesson that we had learned again and again and again with bird flu, H1N1, even Ebola, is that there's often an element of absolute panic, and the panic can do more harm than good. And so it seemed like that was the important point to emphasize. Governor Cuomo said the same thing. I think the fear could do more harm than good. But the problem is, when you're wrong about the fear or the panic being worse than the disease, it makes it look like you underplayed it. And I don't know if you have any thoughts as someone who communicates about public health, what's the best way to strike that balance?
2: Well, again, I do think that... that we are going to, there's two, there's two parts of this public health disaster. I mean, the first is, or the, the, um, the, the suffering and the hospitalization and death caused by the virus. I do think that by doing what we did, completely shutting down, without sort of, I, I do think we could have done this in a more surgical way. I mean, in the Northeast, half the deaths are in nursing homes. So, so yeah. you know, that, that, that could have been a more targeted strategy, meaning make sure that, you know, that you, if you're going to do testing, and we were terrible at doing testing in this country, you know, make sure you do the testing there. No one can walk into that into that home until into that nursing home until they're tested. I mean, really try and isolate those, and you would have prevented as many as half the deaths in the Northeast, where about half the deaths in the country occurred. Um, so I, I do think that the, the targeting strategy was, was not a, a ridiculous idea because the second part of this, this public health disaster is what you're about to see, which is massive joblessness associated with, no doubt, massive homelessness and all the public health disasters that come with massive homelessness like food insecurity and, and domestic violence and child abuse and, and, de- and depression and suicide, et cetera. That's round two. And I do think if we'd done a little better in round two, especially with testing, we wouldn't be in, in as bad of a position we're at. We're like one of the worst countries in the world in terms of death per million. We were terrible about the way we handled this. Do you
0: think there's something that affects others in your field such that they can't do what you just did, listen to what you said and said, I got it wrong. Now let's try to be right. Because I do see a lot of and hear a lot of
2: people, medical professionals, just digging their heels in and not being able to do that. No, I think you have to learn as you go. I mean, it's, you know, science, medicine nature is humbling and i think you know you have to be open minded to the fact that you might be wrong um so i think i was certainly not not uh, right about those things that i said early but you know i i'm willing to learn as i go which in some ways is the theme of this book i think you know we as as doctors do learn as we go i mean there there were things i learned as a pediatrician when i was training in the in the late 1970s early 80s that were you know sort of taught as as gospel that were Wrong, and, and so we have to change. And I think that's sort of part of this book. You, you're trying to, you know, say, look, here are the data showing that a lot of the things that we're doing, we shouldn't be doing. I think the most surprising thing to me was heart stents. I mean, heart stents don't work. And, and you know, you think this makes perfect sense, right? Someone just had a heart attack, for example, or they had angina or meaning a, a, a heart chest pain. Because because one of the two arteries that supply their heart is blocked, say more than seventy percent, um, and the area that where was damaged beyond that was exactly the area that was being supplied by that artery. So wouldn't it make sense to you know, to put a stent in there that opens up that that clogged area? Wouldn't that make sense? And there was a study done where they actually did sham stenting, meaning you know they, they pretended to put a stent in half the patient, or they put a stent in the other half, and then they made sure that the you know the medical they did as as good as they could in terms of medical treatment, meaning lower the bad cholesterol levels, made sure you kept the blood pressure normal, meaning for people who had high blood pressure. And there was no difference between the two groups. So why would that be true? And now we know that that big heart artery also supplies smaller and smaller arteries, which were also blocked, and you weren't opening that up. So I think that if there's anything I do in this book that probably threatens an industry, um, it's it's that. And finally, did you ever think that we would get to
0: this point in this country where we would be having a debate, a relatively uninformed debate, about the potential efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I know. So I think I think what uh, Donald Trump initially said was that hydroxychloroquine was going to be the greatest breakthrough in the history of medicine. Didn't work out that way. I mean, it turns out that there's been now three prospective placebo-controlled studies showing that it doesn't in any sense um, lessen your risk of going to the ICU or lessen your risk of going to the morgue. Um, what it does do, though, 10% of people had to drop out because it causes heart toxicities, arrhythmias. So no, it's not, not the wonder drug it was claimed to be. It, it was an example of uh, kind of the the executive branch co-opting science uh-huh so you're saying the
0: discovery of antibiotics and then maybe germ theory are still one and two and haven't been displaced <laughs> right not yet <laughs> not yet the name of the book is overkill the author who i've enjoyed talking to is paul Offit. when modern medicine goes too far he's the director of vaccine education center at the children's hospital of philadelphia thanks so much thank you And now the spiel. Yesterday, I read two essays because I like to seek out information that challenges me or makes me think. And one was in The Nation magazine by Katha Pollitt, and it was called We Should Take Women's Accusations Seriously, But Tara Reads Fall Short. You may have remembered, also in The Nation, I critiqued a piece by Kate Mann, which came to the different conclusion, the opposite conclusion. I love this essay not because it aligned with my thinking, though in many ways it did. I, in fact, have not come to the conclusion that Tara Reed's accusations fall short of being taken seriously. I still think it's possible that it happened, but as I've been following the situation, more and more problems are complicating her charges. But what I like so much was that Pollitt lays out her case very clearly, very persuasively, and she uses really good writing. I mean, the piece starts with the sentence... I would vote for Joe Biden if he boiled babies and ate them. Ah, very good. Got me. I'm hooked. And then she goes piece by piece, all the things that Tara Reid has said, uh, how we should view those accusations, the shortcomings thereof, how to contextualize evidence that Tara Reid has been dishonest in the past. And I came to this graph. If every piece of evidence for an accusation is a brick and there's something the matter with each of them, do you have a wall? or just a pile of bricks. I think you have a pile of bricks. It is possible that Reid endured some form of sexual harassment while working for Biden. The handsiness mentioned by many women, for example, the assault, the retaliation, little evidence, and no proof. Now, I don't like this because it aligns with my thinking necessarily, and it doesn't perfectly align with my thinking. I don't know if there is no proof, but I like this because it's great writing, and it's great writing because it's vivid, It creates an image in one's head, and it even works on a little bit of an extra level because when it talks of bricks and when it talks of walls, it evokes phrases like a solid foundation for a case. It doesn't have to say she has a weak foundation. It literally is talking about the components of the foundation. So its metaphor is doing extra work. I think it's the sort of writing that is effective and convincing to most people. All right. Then I sought out or was, it was recommended to me that I read another piece of writing and this is on Alison Roman. Now I was very curious to find something, anything persuasive that spoke to me that kind of shook me from my position that the New York Times has just ridiculously overreacted to a very, very minor faux pas of Alison Roman criticizing two women and they were both Asian women. And then there's another issue, people criticizing Alison Roman for using different spices uh, not associated with Western white ethnicities. Here was the article. It was uh, written in Eater magazine, eater.com. It was written by an author named Navneet Along, and the title was called Stewed Awakening. I won't read you the whole thing, but here's the pull quote. And what a pull quote is, is the part that they think is most convincing or the best writing. Okay. Only whiteness can deracinate and subsume the world of culinary influences into itself and yet remain unnamed. This, to me, is not terrible, especially if you are educated or had the right, not quality of schooling, but exact type of schooling where these sorts of words are used freely. But this, to me, is the sort of sentence that maybe can be decoded and understood, though not by a large percentage of the population, and not just ignorant people would have a hard time with that, very smart people who maybe didn't go to college in the last 20 years. Anyway, it can maybe be decoded, but it's not, to most people, the vast majority of people, it's not something that can be instantly understood. I just think, as rhetoric, it falls far short of bricks and walls and piles, whiteness, deracinate, subsume subsume into itself, which I think things that are subsumed are probably into itself, and yet remain unnamed. I mean, that's where the sentence, that's where the quote ends, just kind of hanging out there, the unnamedness of the phenomenon, and you kind of have to to go back and said, what is the thing that is unnamed? It is the whiteness. That is unnamed, or is it the culinary influence? It's a little confusing, and it's not terrible writing. I know that people write and think like this, and a number of people who read this essay told me it was really good, but I was just contrasting the kinds of rhetoric going on, and I started thinking about words and argument and where they fall short. Another piece of that eater essay the way that excitement over particular trends and recipes circulates publicly, whether on Instagram or in Bon Appetit, can reinforce whiteness as a norm. Just as divorcing history from food erases the contributions and lives of people of color from Western narratives, when whiteness is allowed to function as if it weren't that, it hurts us all. I'm not sure what the it is, I think it it's whiteness not allowing to function as if it were that. So it has a that and an it, not a hundred percent what the sh- pronouns refer to. I see a lot of words or phrases in this where a simpler, more direct word would confuse me less, you know, narratives and reinforcing whiteness. Again, it's not bad writing for a particular audience. And the particular audience he's trying to reach is probably going to respond, but that audience is, College grads, probably young college grads educated in critical race theory or gender studies who have been taught to use verbs in this manner and to recognize that verbs used in this manner are powerful, more powerful than straightforward words, more powerful than even Latinate verbs, which are the fancy ones. The the use of erasure as a synonym for something that really is literally a lot less than erasure to use erasure meaning ignoring, or to use erasure to mean to deny someone or some people credit. You know, it strikes me as a little desperate. It strikes me as a little propagandistic. I mean, if your point was strong enough, you could say it's not giving the people who invented these spices and used these spices credit if you had a strong enough point. But if you don't have a strong enough point, you go big and you allege erasure. I mean, Native Americans experienced erasure at the hands of white settlers, true. Black artists were erased off the credits and from the riches of Elvis Presley recordings. But erasure in the name of the dish, spiced chickpea stew with coconut and turmeric, just calling it hashtag the stew, something less than erasure. I understand words take on new meanings, and when we say the Lakers decimated the Milwaukee Bucks, it doesn't necessarily mean cut down by a 10th. Sometimes it can actually mean more. But when the literal meaning of a word is something absolute, it tells me that the author is not trying to communicate using nuance or shades of meaning. In fact, like I said, little desperate, go big when you can't go convincing. There was another essay by... Roxana, Hadidi, Alison Roman, the colonization of spices and the exhausting prevalence of ethnic erasure in popular food culture. The writing itself, it wasn't as if pulled directly from an academic journal. It was from a site called Pajiba. Roxana, the, the vertical within that site was Celebrity. Okay, so it's not meant to just be read by professors, but the exhausting prevalence of food erasure and the colonization of spices, this is academic speak. It's often rooted in psychology. It's jargon. And to me, for me, to try to convince me, it is off-putting. It is, I think, less effective. And I also think it's an attempt to only communicate to those inside the circle. Now, I acknowledge That there are a lot of words that I use, that you use, that don't strike me as, you know, highfalutin or trying too hard or an approximation or appropriation of one meaning and bending it into another. Where does it help? I mean, the phrase passive-aggressive is something we probably use every day or twice a day, and it was once in the cutting edge of psychology journals, but it came to describe a way of acting, and it was useful to have this description. So we used the fairly multisyllabic phrase passive-aggressive. I mean, in less syllabic journaly terms, buy-in, which is something that, you know, I would say 30 years ago would strike the ear as a little weird. Now it doesn't. But still, I chafe at a lot of these words, impacted and gendered and erasure and trauma when it doesn't really mean trauma and appropriation and spaces, as in white spaces and black spaces, but also the online space, the education space. A lot of these words are jargon. They're inexact. They had one definition, had that definition yanked out from under them and are now being used or, to be more precise, wielded exactly because... They are recondite in nature. And listen, I'm not a guy who's above using recondite, but recondite has been around since the mid 1600s, even if few know that it means few know. And I also think this, if you're atomizing and isolating, I sometimes wonder if you've not lost the ability, not just to convince anyone, it's hard to convince anyone, but not just the ability to convince anyone, but if we've lost the inclination to do so. It's not just that we're failing to win arguments. Increasingly, we're failing to make them in forums for a or to audiences that can possibly respond given the way we're arguing. Okay, so that was somewhat negative thought. But then I came across this and this was from a uh, a professor named Carrera de Joco. Dr. K, the copper doctor, Carrera de Joco. And she said that her group is currently trying to describe their projects. There are a bunch of academics using only one syllable words, and it's honestly the best thing ever. And then a bunch of other academics attempted this, and the results were delightful. Like, um, here was Dr. Elaine Plamadon, who is a lecturer at the University of Quebec in Montreal. And actually his area of study isn't that hard to understand. Dueling and codes of honor. And this was his one syllable explanation. Male, but man, question mark. Swords and brawls in Ben's work. I don't know who Ben is. It doesn't matter. That's what he studies. Then a professor named Lindsay Harris, who is a cognitive psychologist studying reading and word learning across writing systems, said that Her area of study in only one-syllable words is, how do we learn what words mean? Is it best to learn them with eyes, hands, or ears? Does it change if you are blind and read Braille? Do blind folks use more sounds in words to learn them? I love that. See, I am compelled by that. I don't know what her official write-up in the last thing that she was published in a journal was, but whatever it was, it can't nearly be as good as that. And here's another one by a linguist himself, Michael Arard. He is the author of "Um's, Slips, Stumbles, and Verbal Blunders and What They Mean and Babble No More, The Search for the World's Most Extraordinary Language Learners. He says his area of study is the words of kids and the last words, blinks moans, and the quiet of the soon to be dead. He is a wordsmith. He knows how to use the short syllables of word and smith. There are some short words, one-syllable words, by the way, that are pretty fancy frot ken beyond my ken verve apt truck i have no truck with that i use these words a lot by the way if you notice and also there are a lot of short one syllable words that are super duper fancy cuz they are foreign phrases quid pro quo je ne sais quoi all one syllable But you know what? As the Quaker said, it is a gift to be simple, simple being the only multisyllabic word in that phrase. If we're trying, if we're really trying, we're trying to communicate to people in a level they can understand. So what is the gist? The gist is but a show that looks at news so that you say, huh? Or yes? Or nope? Or what? It might make you laugh too. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. Erasure? He just can't get enough erasure. Margaret Kelly is the associate producer of The Gist. Associate producer. That's kind of grand. How about cuts talks with Mike and guests, gives thoughts, and books folks The Gist. You know, if you take New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut... And everyone who's ever been to those states, and also every other state besides Alaska and Montana, turns out the United States has had fewer corona deaths than Iceland, with a land area larger than Mexico. Winning. Umpro depu de and thanks for listening.